But life comes from death. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but His death gave us life. So if you've got a Bible today, would you turn to Matthew chapter 27. In verse 27 it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear the cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tested it, he would not drink. And then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all of the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran out, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Jesus had a miraculous birth. He did many wonderful works. He healed so many people of incurable diseases. He said some of the greatest words ever spoken. But his greatest work was reserved for the end of his life. The greatest work was the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He came to die. 
Now, everybody today knows what a cross is. It's become sort of a symbol that people wear for many different reasons. It's on the top of cathedrals. People wear it around their necks. You can see it in cemeteries, and especially around Christmas time, you see a cross. If you were to ask people, what is the meaning of the cross, you'd get a variety of answers. People would say, well, the cross is just the symbol of Christianity. Historians would say, no, the cross is really a symbol of Roman justice and sometimes Roman torment. But the truth of the matter is, the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love. To a Christian, that's what it means. It's the greatest demonstration of a love that God had for his children. William Barclay said, the cross shows that there's no length that the love of God will not go to prove his love for humanity. God's love would stoop to send his son to die on a cross. Now, we who are Christians know that Jesus was not killed by accident. In fact, he wasn't killed. He gave his life freely. For the Old Testament said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the Son of God came to bridge that huge gap that was between heaven and earth that the sins of man had created. The plan of the cross is seen all the way back in the life of Jesus from his birth with the strange gifts that were given to him. Of course, we know that the men from the east came with gold, the medal of kings, incense, the fragrance that the priests used in the temple. But then they brought him myrrh, which was embalming fluid, used in the Near East all the way from Persia down to Israel. Sort of a strange gift to give parents. Here's some embalming fluid for your son. Congratulations. But of course, we know that it was in keeping with what the prophets predicted. For Isaiah spoke of his death. and He said that he will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus himself also spoke of his death frequently, though his disciples didn't pick up on it. He predicted his death all the way through his ministry. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Now, people have mistaken that scripture verse, and they think, okay, let's sing and lift Jesus up. For he said, he'll draw all men to himself. That's not what he's talking about. He means lifted up off the earth on a cross, on a Roman form of torture. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd will give his life for the sheep. I lay my life down that I might take it again. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and to take it again. Then there was that time when Jesus was with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi, and he said, who do men say that I am? Of course, they said, some say Elijah, John the Baptist, on and on and on. Well, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Of course, Jesus said, right on, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father who is in heaven. But then shortly after that, Jesus said, from that, or the scripture says, from that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. 
The scripture says, Peter rebuked him and he said, Far be that from you, this cannot happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. Jesus regarded anything that would keep him from the cross as satanic. Because his goal was to die on the cross to save men from sins. Even when Satan himself appeared to Jesus. And he said, look, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for their mine, and I can give them to whoever I want. It was then that Jesus rebuked the enemy. Because Jesus came not for the easy road, but for the hard road, the way of the cross. He spoke about it often. In fact, his whole ministry, he determined to keep the hour that he spoke so often about. At one point toward the end of his ministry, Jesus, it says, looked steadfastly towards Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was his goal. Now there's a book out. It actually came out many years ago. Some of you have heard of it or read of it. By a guy by the name of Hugh Schoenfield called The Passover Plot. Ever heard of it? It's actually humorous in my opinion. Because this guy goes out of his way, goes out of his way to show that The crucifixion was all just a plot. That Jesus arranged his whole death and arranged the setting of the crucifixion, arranged the Last Supper. and It was all a plot to get people to believe that he was the Messiah. And as I read the book, I thought, eh, looking at the premise of the book, of course it was a plot. It was a plot from eternity past. God had planned this event. for it. It was nothing new that it was a plot. Jesus spoke of his death. The Father predicted his death. It was a setup. But it wasn't a human plot. It was a divine plot. Way back at the beginning of his ministry, when his mother Mary was trying to arrange things at the wedding feast, Jesus said, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. In the temple, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees when they were angered. It says, Jesus spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. And then later on in Jerusalem, Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this very reason I came to this hour. It was all plotted. It was predicted actually way back in the Old Testament. And as I read the crucifixion every year, my mind wanders back to a time when another father gave his son and it was predictory of the cross. His name was Abraham. And he took his son Isaac to a Mount Moriah, which happens to be the exact same mountain that Jesus was crucified on, called then Moriah. He said, Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love. And that always struck me as odd because Isaac was not his only son. His first son was Ishmael. But God says, take your only son, because he was the only begotten son of Abraham and Sarah. And God said, the son whom you love. Of course he loved Ishmael too, but it's interesting to note that the first time the word love is used in the Bible, it speaks of the love that a father has for his son as he brings him to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And as he goes... To sacrifice him, you know the story how he has the knife ready to plunge it in his son and the angel stops him and says, no, 
And Isaac says, well, here's the altar. Here's the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the sacrifice. God will provide himself a sacrifice. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. That was all predicting something that would come in the future. It was a type of what would happen on Calvary. Where Jesus Christ was given the only begotten Son of the Father. Where God took his Son, his only Son whom he loved. And upon a Roman cross he was put there to die for the sins of the world. The cross, though it's not spoken about in detail in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the cross is one of the cruelest instruments of torture ever invented. It was invented to deliberately delay the death process, to last a long time. A cross in those days was one of two items. It was either one solid pole without a crossbar where the victim was stretched to the max, and his arms were tied or nailed above his head. Or it was a center beam and a cross beam called a patibulum that weighed about 75 to 100 pounds that was put horizontally so that the victim could be tied or again nailed upon that cross. It was reserved only for criminals of the worst kind, according to the Roman government, a traitor, a murderer, an insurrectionist. Cicero, said that a Roman citizen should never be beaten. For a Roman citizen to be flogged is an abomination. For a Roman citizen to be killed is a horrible crime. But for a Roman citizen to be crucified, he said, no one should even say such a thing. It was reserved for the cruelest type of criminal. In a book called The Life of Christ by Frederick Farrar, he shows that the cross was designed to inflict the maximum torture. He said, The unnatural position would make every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually would gangrene when a victim would take several days to die. The arteries, especially the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with a surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and a raging thirst. After the supper, Jesus went with his disciples to a garden, a garden called Gethsemane. And it was there that he was praying. He was in agony. He was in torment. And the Bible declares that an interesting phenomenon took place. Something they call in medical terminology hematidrosis. That is where the blood capillaries, because of intense anxiety, burst, gets mingled into the sweat glands, in the cutaneous tissue, and that person under tremendous stress can sweat great drops of blood. Jesus was arrested in that garden. He was taken to Caiaphas' house. The disciples forsook him. And if you look back in chapter 26 for just a moment, it says in verse 57, And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Peter followed at a distance. Of course, Peter denied Jesus. Uh, the witnesses came forward. Uh, 
In verse 68, the soldiers were striking him with their hands. They said, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it who struck you? The other Gospels tell us that Jesus was whipped or scourged with a Roman flagellum, a whip of about two and a half to three feet long. It had a handle upon were tied, which were tied strips of leather embedded uh, within the leather strips were pieces of glass, metal, and bone. It was designed to not go across the back, but to stick with a grip into the back of the victim. And as the Roman soldiers would strike Jesus Christ, and those little pieces of metal and bone would grip his back, they would then pull to form lacerations that would go beyond the subcutaneous tissue into the tissue that underlay it and even destroy the muscles. Many victims never lived through that. They died in the process. Jesus lived through it. A bloody mess. Isaiah predicted saying that you couldn't even recognize his visage. It had been so marred. They pulled at his beard, no doubt pulling chunks of it out. Then Jesus was led away to be crucified. When they took him to Calvary, they laid him down. He had carried his patibulum, that upper horizontal beam, to Calvary. They fastened it to the upper beam, the vertical one. They would put the victim on the cross, and they would take a spike, not a nail, a long spike, and they would fasten it at the wrist, the base, the proximal portion of the forearm, between the two bones that form an arch, the radius and the ulna. It would be driven in because that forms a hook that the patient, that the victim could rest upon and then his feet were also pinned or fastened with these spikes to the cross. A burning pain, physicians tell us, because the arteries were severed and pressure is put upon the ulnar and the radial nerves, would cause that victim to have to push up against the spike in his feet just to relieve the pain that he feels in his wrists. After a period of time, the intercostal muscles and the pectoral muscles begin to spasm and eventually don't even operate. So to breathe, you'd push up upon the spike just to get air. But pretty soon, those muscles would give way. And it is said that you could only inhale but not exhale very readily. Many victims lasted several days in that condition. The question we always come up with, of course, we answer it too quickly because we've heard it for so many years, is why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus go to that kind of torture to experience that kind of pain 2,000 years ago on the cross? Why did he do it? Isaac Watts asked that question. In one of his famous hymns, he said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such... A worm as I. Jesus, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it for me? The first and obvious reason is that he might be the sin bearer. In ancient Israel, they had a goat called a scapegoat. They laid hands on the goat, confessed their sins, and they let that goat go out into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people away. Jesus was the ultimate sin bearer. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. With that is that he might be the life giver. Through his death and accepting him, we have life, eternal life. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have the forgiveness of sins. And really, I think that's what it boils down to, folks. 
The greatest need that a human being experiences is forgiveness. I read a quote by a famous psychiatrist who said, in the mental institutions in which I work, if the patients that I work with could be assured that they are forgiven, 75% would walk out tomorrow morning. If I knew that I could be forgiven of my past. As sinners, we have offended a holy God and we need His forgiveness. All of the religion, all of the rituals, all of the ceremonies do us no good. What good does a pair of shoes do to someone whose feet are paralyzed? What good does a pair of glasses do for someone who's totally blind? And what good does all of the religious systems, ceremonies, and rituals do for a person who's never experienced God's forgiveness in his heart? He did it so that we might have life through the forgiveness of our sins. There's a great little story that came, comes to us from South America. A kid by the name of Paco, angry with his father, has a fight. His father, in a heat of rage, yells at Paco, throws him out of the house. But Paco runs away from home. He's not seen for weeks. His father looks for Paco all over the place. Looks for him in the hangouts, looks for him at his friends' homes, doesn't find Paco. Days pass, weeks pass, almost a month passes. Finally, his father decides to take out an ad in the local newspaper. And in big, bold print, there in the advertisement section, it says, Dear Paco, I love you. All is forgiven. Please come home. Meet me tomorrow at 12 noon at the post office. When he got there at 12 noon, there were 700 people named Paco <laughs> waiting to be forgiven by their father. Oh, we need forgiveness. And that's the message of the cross. Come home. All is forgiven. Meet me at the cross. And a whole lot of people have gathered at that cross for a couple thousand years. We're among a few of them. We've gathered at the cross to sort of hang our heads and say, Jesus, my sins put you up there. Would you forgive me? I want to know forgiveness. Only to realize that that Savior lifts up our head. And just like the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we celebrate death, but we celebrate the life that that death brings. This is the identity for the Christian, the cross. Please do not let the story of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection become so familiar to you that it loses its edge. The blood that was shed was the blood of God. Father, thank you for your love, the love that produced the sending of your Son, who poured out his life to death that we might have life. In Jesus' name.